Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Made it up. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I love that. I love in that introduction, they always get Davenport, Iowa in there. I love Iowa. Are there any Iowans here? Usually Iowans. Yeah, how do you not? It's funny. We love Iowa, but not enough to live there. Uh, well, we love it. I mean, it's like yesterday watching the Hawks play in Kinnick Stadium, and the leaves are just starting to change, and it's terrific. But in 1975, I moved down here and uh, got involved in the real estate business. And in the midst of that, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Larry Wright, and Larry was the vehicle that God used to open my eyes to hear the gospel, to believe, changed me. And uh, one of the things that happened is that he gave me a deep love for himself and his word and making his word live practical in my life every day so that it affects everything that I do. So when Larry called Anderson and said, are you available to teach on, on the 17th? I said, sure, what, what, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, it doesn't matter, whatever you'd like. And so I had three or four, five I thought incredible ideas. Uh, pretty convinced that any one of them might have been the greatest sermon ever preached, I'm not sure, but, but pretty convinced that they were right on. And then life started to happen. And you heard Troy make reference to Harvey and Irma. You begin to feel the uncertainty of stuff around us. In the midst of this, we commemorate 9-11. But we see things, things are so iffy that, that even Bono couldn't do his concert in St. Louis yesterday. So, so I came up with this title, not catchy or clever, but accurate, is to find certainty in the midst of uncertain times. So, so let me make a, a big leap here. We have these 9-11 moments corporately. So when you say 9-11, almost everybody thinks of that incident in New York City, and we have that. We have a Harvey, we have a Irma. Here's what I've learned over the years, that every day there are people having their own version of 9-11 or Harvey. Or Irma, or whatever that is. And, and, and I'm confident, I just know stat-wise that there's some of you barely got here today, that you're hanging on, that you're in the middle of this, I'm, I'm gonna use words like crisis, but you're in the middle of this challenge, difficulty, whatever it is. You got yourself together, you got yourself cleaned up, and you got here, but everything feels iffy, shaky. How, how do I find certainty 
in the midst of uncertain times. In my life, here's what I've learned. Doctrine is essential. And it's especially important in uncertain times. When I begin to experience the, the challenges of life, there's a huge temptation, it seems to me, to, to, to walk away, maybe at least intellectually, of the things I know. So I'm going to give you three simple points for you to remember in the midst of uncertain times. Number one, God is sovereign. God's in control. It may feel like things are out of control, and they may be out of your control or my control, but they're not out of God's control. Webster defines sovereign as above or superior to all others. Supreme in power or rank or authority. God is God. God does as he chooses. R.C. Sproul's expression, there's not a maverick molecule loose in the universe that can usurp God's plan. In, in the book of Daniel, we're introduced to a, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and he's, he's the most powerful man in the land. And he feels it. One night, Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 29, he's on the roof of the royal palace. And, and he reflects, and he says to himself, is this not the Babylon, the great, which I myself have built a, as a royal residence by the mighty power of my hand and the glory of my majesty? Here's Nebuchadnezzar walking around, surveying his empire, singing his favorite song, How Great I Art. And right in the middle of this, we're told, while the words were in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared your sovereignty is removed from you. You'll be driven away from mankind. You'll dwell, dwelling will be in the beasts of the field. And for a period of seven years, he wanders around and eats grass, if you will, like a cow. Here's this man out there. Here, a very important point here. Not just humiliated, but humbled. How do I know? He comes to his senses, and Daniel records his testimony. And, and he says in chapter 4, verse 34, at the end of the period, a Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven. His reason returned to him. And his conclusion was that God lives forever. I will honor him for his dominion is from generation to generation. If I read on beyond this, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, the sovereign one, the one who raises up, the one who puts down, the one who's in charge, who's in absolute control. So at 9-11, as we debrief that, 
if you, if you could kind of transport yourself in time back there, right after 9-11, there was this giant resurgence, really important here, in church attendance. Our location is out in Gilbert. I happened to be in Washington on 9-11. I had just left. And, and we were getting calls from all of the neighboring business. Could we open the church so people could come and pray. And it seemed like yes should be the answer to that. And so we opened the church. And that next Sunday, attendance at church was bigger than Easter. And, and it got everybody all excited. And, and all my friends are saying, we're, we're going we're gonna to have revival is going to break out. And I tend to be a little more cynical, and I said, well, why don't we wait a week or two? And the next week, it was half that, and within three weeks, statistically, church attendance was down across the country around 7%. And in that moment of rushing for security, people started to step back and say, well, where was God on 9-11? Well, the same place he was on 9-10 and 9-12, and the same place he's been forever, and the same place he's in now. He's on the throne. And so as you sit today, and you ponder, and you sort out life, and you try to figure it out, you may not understand all of this. For sure, God either caused or allowed 9-11. If that's not true, he's not God. But all of a sudden, that raises a question, because now you're going, well, what about that cancer? What about that bankruptcy? What about that relationship? What about that? I may not know why God's doing what he's doing, but I know he's in control. It leads me to my second point, which is the perspective that all things are temporary. This is just passing away. James writes this in James chapter 4. He, he writes, Come now, you say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit, and yet, James 4, 14, you don't know what your life will be like. You're like a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes. Now, let's be really careful here. James is not putting down planning, engaging in business, and making a profit. Those can all be very good things. This is not an anti-planning passage. Here's what he's saying, is in the middle of life, in the middle of business, in the middle of going to the mall, in the middle of going to the gym, in, in the middle of life, in the middle of your pursuit, you don't know what tomorrow will be like, and he is a great, it's, it, I'm right now working my way through the book of Ecclesiastes. One wonderful, 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 insightful book. I had a, a guy who was planting a church came, and said, if you were starting and you were teaching, what would you teach to a new church? 
And, and I hadn't been prepared for that answer. It just came out. And I said, well, I would make sure we understood Genesis 3. I would make sure we understood a gospel. I, I would probably do Romans, or if we didn't have the, the time, Ephesians. And all of those kind of fit. And then all of a sudden, I said, and the book of Ecclesiastes. Because now I'm beginning to get God's view of myself and the world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, here's Solomon, unique among all mankind. For he was granted excess in every area and success. He doesn't write this book as a bitter, hard old man who never achieved, but a guy who succeeded, here you go, at everything you think would make you happy. Money, had it. Sex, had it. Power, had it. Construction, had it. Big house, had it. So whatever you bring and you say, I think this will make me happy, Solomon says, been there, done that. And here's his conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, we need to touch on that word vanity because we need to think of it, and maybe we think of somebody even primping to come here today. I don't look like it, but I, I, as I'm getting ready today, I'm looking and I'm saying, how do I look? Do I wear my shirt out or in? And, and I went with in. I'm, I'm, I'm a throwback. I'm bringing class back to the place. And, and I had, two weeks ago, surgery on this ear. I have an implant that's in there that we're going to activate if you're a praying person, be praying for Friday because they're going to turn this on. And this ear, which is deaf, has a, a, a good chance of being able to hear. But when they did this surgery, my, my ear is kind of lying funny, and they had to cut my hair. And I'm looking at this morning. I know you're looking at it and saying, you really worked this hard, and this is all the better it gets. But that's true. That's, and I'm primping, and I'm combing that, and I'm saying that's not looking down, and I'm spraying that. So when you hear vanity, you think that. That's not what this word vanity means. It's much more closely associated with the word vapor. Poof. Life is temporary. It's here, and then it's gone. We need to jump in right now. And you're not going to find happiness in a person, place, or thing other than Jesus. You might think so, but you aren't the exception. It's all temporary. I, I This summer, we spent almost essentially the entire summer here. And so I've been teaching at different churches. And Sandy and I were at a church that's in a retirement village. So you would assume accurately that most of the people in the church were older. The guy sitting behind us was 103. And when Sandy said, how are you doing? Here's what he said. When I turned 100, they took my car away and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> well, your insurance agent is happy. 
and we're happy, but he made it to 103. Am I going to get there? It doesn't feel like it. I'm 67 and shooting for 68. But if he gets 103 or 13 or 23, it's all temporary. It's here. And then it's poof. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon lands on this thought. I came in naked. I'm returning naked. I think this is really fascinating that Job lands on that same thought. Solomon in the midst of great success, Job in the great adversity, and both of them says, I came with nothing, I'm leaving with nothing. Paul picks up the same idea in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, if we have food and covering with those, we should be content. And then he gave you the secret to contentment. This is the absolute secret to satisfaction. He says, 1 Timothy 6, 7, I came with nothing, I'm leaving with nothing. This is all temporary. Don't be boasting. Instead say, it's the Lord's will. I write my plans, but I write them in pencil, and God has the eraser. The challenge with plans is somehow, as a planner, you assume you're the final authority or you're the control. You're not. Plan, work, strategize, but God's in control. So God's sovereign and things are temporary. And and then the third point is that, and I really need to know this in the midst of hard times, is that God works all things together for good. Look with me, would you please, at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And, and I, I've got it on the screen, but if I just said to you, quote this, I will tell you how most people quote Romans 8, 28. They start with, all things work together for good. That's not where that verse starts. If I start with, all things work together for good, that verse is about me. This verse is not about you, it's about God. And we know in your Bible next to 28, you write the word fact. And we know, I want you to remember that word know. We're gonna come back when we close today to that word. And we know God is involved. God works all things together for good. Doesn't say that he causes all things. We know he doesn't cause sin. We just know God's in control and he works things together for good. Even even in our common culture, we have this phrase. People love to use it. Even in the midst of hardship, they'll use it. Maybe you've heard it. They'll say, everything happens what? For a reason. So if you're talking to somebody and they think you're nuts for being here on a Sunday morning and nuts for believing in God, and they say, but I believe everything happens for a reason. Well, if everything happens for a reason, doesn't something, someone, some entity have to be in control? If this verse is true, Romans 8, 28, and it is, that just from this we know God is all-knowing and all-powerful, to work these things together for good. 
He knows everything there is to know about you and your circumstance. He knows everything you've ever done or thought or said, everything you're ever going to do or think or say. And yet, and, and, and I think, and, and maybe it's just me, but, but I think we've heard this so much that we've almost lost the impact of it. And he loves us. He loves you, okay, giant thought. He loves you in spite of you, not because of you. He doesn't love you because you've performed or because you have potential. He loves you in spite of you because he loves you. And Paul goes on in Romans 8, 28. What can separate me from the love of Christ? Nothing. It's his love for me. And in the midst of my 9-11s, in the midst of all of these challenges, God's sovereign and in control and working things together for good. Now, let me point out one phrase in there. That's not a universal promise to all of mankind. That's to those of us who love God, who know him personally. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by nature, I'm separated from God, not united with him. Paul really emphasizes this. Give me a second and, and I'll turn there. Paul really emphasizes this in Romans 3.10, where the language is so powerful and, and so exclusive. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. None who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's God's assessment of mankind. And you may want to rise up and argue with that and say, but you don't know. You don't know my neighbor. My neighbor cuts my grass when I'm gone with the summer. Well, you got a nice neighbor. You don't know Nana. Well, you didn't know Nana in high school, okay? That's what I'm telling you. Nana, no one is good in their heart. We look at the action. God looks at the heart. And so we come to this transaction with God, and we say, Romans 6.23, I just want what I deserve. Well, the wages of what you deserve is death, is separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. John 14, 1. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12. There's salvation in no one else. So all of these wonderful things that we've spoken about for about uh, 25 minutes, God's sovereignty, that, that, that things work together for good. All of those things are a promise to those of us who say Jesus is Lord. Is that you? If so, these are your promises. It does not take, so if we were at summer camp right now, we'd say, look up here, okay? It, a life circumstantially is going to go like that. You, 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 you're not going to take that away. 
But in the midst of that, I can find the peace of God, the stability of him. I know that he's in control, but he doesn't owe me an explanation. I'm not walking around going, God, why would you? Why would you? Why would you? If he wanted me to know, he would have told me right in here. If he didn't tell me, it's beyond my comprehension or my pay grade. I don't need to know it. He's sovereign. That's what faith is. We talk about faith so much. Faith is God being God and me understanding that. So don't miss this point. Put a bow on this is that God either causes or allows everything that happens in the world, in your life. And while I guess there could be a sense in which that could be scary, it's a source of great comfort. God never once looked at your life and said, oh my gosh, I would have never expected that. What a surprise. Hmm, what do we do now? He has a plan. It may be my plan, may not be my plan. If I have to choose between the two, I want his plan, not mine, because I know his is the better of the two. Paul writes this as we try to tie this together in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So the, don't lose heart, don't be discouraged, don't give up. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed how? Day by day. Through Bible study and prayer and contemplation, the spiritual discipline. For momentary light affliction, that's this light, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul says, here's the key. And this is right after Paul has been talking about his own condition as he reports back to the church at Corinth. How we've been pressured, how we have anxiety, how we have all of this around us. He said, here's the deal. We don't look at the temporal, we look at the eternal. And that's where I draw my comfort. This is all passing away. I, I have a phrase, and you may think this is odd, but I love to officiate at funerals, memorial services. I love it. Because at that moment, everything becomes real. And I just did a service where the, the gentleman who died was an adult convert and loved Jesus so much, but none of his family did. Very strange. Usually there's family members, one or two, who kind of believe. None of them. And it was very strange. There was not one thing I could say to comfort them. Every passage, every truth, every word, every thought of faith was beyond their comprehension. They didn't get it. Why? Well, they're not believers. God hasn't changed their hearts. And they looked totally at the temporal and not the eternal. So they were mourning the loss of their dad, who they believed was going from the land of the living 
to the land of the dead where we're celebrating going. He's going from the land of the dead and dying to the land of the living. In the midst of all of this pain and hardship, I see purpose in it. Here's a big takeaway. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Isn't that a strange phrase? Count it joy when you have trials. What kind of trials? Well, he says various, multicolored. It may, it may be physical, relational. It may be the trial of adversity. It may be a trial of prosperity. Count it all joy when, why? Because these are inevitable. When you try, when you encounter various troubles, here's the key word. Remember the word from before? Knowing. You know something. You know God's at work. You know that the testing of that faith produces endurance. My wife Sandy is with me today, and uh, you don't, all you got to do is be able to look at her and to tell she's in amazing shape, and she works out. Um, and I'm sure some of you work out, and, and she does too. She gets up every morning at 4.30. She does the stuff she needs to do to be prepared to, to go to the pool. Not, not like we go to the pool to kind of splash around, to swim two or three miles, to come home, to work all day. She's at the gym at 4 for 45 to 60 minutes of aggressive aerobic training. Weights, bands, pull. It, it's aerobic activity, and, and, uh, and let me stipulate right here. I don't get it, but, but <laughs> she does it and she feels better, okay? Hang with me. All that aerobic activity and that stress and that strain and that pressure makes her stronger. Here's what God says. Trials are spiritual aerobics. Trials test me. Somebody's coined the phrase, if I knew who, I would tell you that God knows the maximum elasticity of our faith. There will be times where he'll take us and he'll allow us or cause us to be pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled, not to destroy us, but to build us up, to make us stronger. So in the midst of our 9-11s and Harvey's and Irma's, here's the thing to remember. Here's the thing that gets me through. One last phrase, what you know trumps what you feel. The president's kind of screwed this phrase up for me, but, <laughs> but what I know trumps what I feel. I feel abandoned. Well, he's, well, that's how I feel, but what I know is, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I may feel like I've sinned and he could never forgive me. But he says he did. I have to go back over and over and over again to what I know to be the truth. How do you know it? The only way you're going to know it is in here. 
That's why I need to be a student of the Word. I'm doing an interesting, I didn't mention this first hour, but the last six months, I've spent my time, most of it, studying on aging. And we did a little survey, about 100 people, with pre-retirement, retirement, ask him questions, biggest challenges, and there was only one thing in the whole survey that surprised me. What's your biggest challenge as you prepare for retirement? Everybody said finances. What are you gonna do when you retire? Almost all of them said, take a class. Didn't say what, didn't say where. Volunteer, didn't say what, didn't say where. Take a trip. They're gonna be doing Viking River cruises down the Salt River here pretty quick because they're Viking River cruising everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And spend time with my kids and grandkids. When we got to the retirement people and we said, what's the surprise? Well, I thought I'd take a class, but it was too hard to register. I thought I'd volunteer, but I didn't want to give up my freedom. I've traveled, but how many castles can you look at? My kids, my grandkids, they weren't that interested in me. And then they wrote, little did I expect that spiritually this is the toughest time of my life. My friends are dying. My kids' families are falling apart. My body's baking down. And the only thing that's going to get you through in that is the only thing that would get you through when you're 30. It's praying, it's studying, it's knowing God, it's community. We're made to spend time and live life with each other. Individualism is almost an essentially secular virtue. What you know all the way through life is going to trump what you feel. And that goes all the way to the grave. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that truth, and it is truth. Thank you for your word. God, help us fall in love with you. We study your word so we can know you. Eternal life is to know you. God, for those that are here and hurting, let them find comfort. Let them find comfort and encouragement in, in the people around them. But ultimately, as you fill us with your spirit, as you lead us and guide us, God, as you draw us close to you, let us experience your kindness, your love. God, we pray that you would use us for your honor and glory all of our lives. And we pray that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.